Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for the encouragement it brings. I thank you for the conviction that it brings. I thank you for the conviction because it shows us where we are in error and how to get ourselves back on track, Lord. Lord, we know the correction that you do bring us, though it can be painful for a time. It can also bring about fruit, Lord. It harvests great fruit as we grow closer to you and learn to serve you in a better way. So as we read your word this morning, Lord, help us to grow and to understand what it is you'd have us learn. In Jesus' name, amen. (coughs) Still getting over a cold, so I'll cough a few times, hopefully not too much. So Luke 16, verses 1 to 17, is the parable of the unjust steward. Oh, you know, and I forgot my son's joke. Let me start with that. Uh, It sort of fits with the theme that most people get with October with the Halloween. So it's, what is the first thing a ghost does when it gets into a car? It fastens its sheet belt. So... The book of Luke, we're not going through the whole book of Luke, obviously, so chapter 16, but just so you know, the book of Luke was written as a well-ordered account of the life of Christ. Many people believe it was written because Paul was on his way to Rome to meet Nero for the first time. And what you did is you had someone who basically, just like you have a prosecutor and a defense attorney, someone would set up your defense. So Luke was setting up a defense to show exactly what Paul was doing because he was being sent to Rome, being accused by the Jews of causing dissension and rebellion against Rome and just many other things. So Luke basically wrote an orderly account to show, look, this is not what Paul's doing. What Paul's doing is following Christ. This is the origins of Christ. This is where Christ came from. And he goes through a whole orderly account. And if you look at Luke, Archaeologically speaking, just with places and names and people it mentions, it's one of the most historically attested books in antiquity or ancient history. Um, No one disputes the historical facts in Luke. Now, Acts is actually part two of Luke, um, because if you look, I believe it's chapter 16, when Luke actually joins their party, and it becomes a a first-person account at that time with Luke saying his perspective of things. But anyway, that's where Luke comes from. Now, this parable is about a steward, or what we would call a manager. I like the word steward personally. It just I like the New King James better. I like that word. So I'm gonna, if I say back and forth between manager and steward, it's the same thing. I just uh, I'll use both interchangeably. So what is a steward? A steward is a person who manages the resources of another usually property or money. The steward had authority over all the master's resources and could transact business in his name. They are in charge of not just keeping it safe, but of its growth as an investment. <coughs> so there's three things that make a good steward or of, first imp- of importance for a steward. Now, the first is a good steward or a good manager must be found trustworthy. We find in 1 Corinthians 4.12 that it says, This then, I'm sorry, 4, 1 through 2. This then is how you ought to regard us, as servants of Christ and as those entrusted with the mysteries God has revealed. Now it is required that those who have been given a trust must prove faithful. That's the NIV version. (coughs) New King James says it this way. Let a man so consider us as servants of Christ, as stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required in stewards that one be found faithful. Now, of second importance is that stewards must always need to keep at the forefront of their mind that the riches that I am entrusted with are to be used in a way that will please and profit whoever the master is. Now, they do this by keeping in mind that it is not mine, yet it is an entrustment. Um, An example would be, in a sense, I am a steward at my work. I'm a manager in a certain part of the warehouse. They trust me to make decisions based on what is best for the company. And I do that in my area. Now, 
I have to put things out based on what I think is going to sell the best, what I think is going to be most profitable. If I think something's not going to be good, then I'll put it towards the middle of the aisle because it's a bogus product or whatever the case may be. Sometimes a customer may come in and say, hey, I noticed that you know, this uh, display is damaged. Can I get a markdown on that? And so we might make a decision based on, okay, can I clear this out? Is this what's best for the company at the time? And then we make that decision and we move things out. But whatever the case may be, or it may be that a member got hurt, or maybe somebody under me made a mistake with what they said, and so I have to rectify that because I need to make sure that I am keeping the company in the front or the master that I serve in the forefront and making sure that they're getting the benefit. So if I have to rectify something to make a customer or a member happy, then I do that. And that's what a steward does. He's making sure that he's profitable for the master, making sure the master is getting the benefit. And in our Christian terms, our Christianese, we'd say that the master or our master is getting the glory for what we're doing. At the same time, the company or the master gives me the tools that I need to make sure that I can do those things. Now, I don't bring glory to the master if I'm taking those things either. Say if I, I'm in my work and I go, you know what? I see that steel in the yard. That would look great in my garage. I can't just take those things from my company and put them up. I represent the company in every aspect, even those things. So if someone knows that I work there, and then they go, Isn't, where'd you get that from? Oh, I just saw it in the yard. They weren't using it anyway. I took it. I can't do that. So in the same way, we have to make sure that we're considering that everything we do as stewards of Christ, we're representing him to the best of our ability. Now, the th of third importance is the steward treats the people under them fairly and respectfully. Now, the people that are managed by me are to be, or us are to be managed in a way where they're treated fairly. If you look in Matthew 24, when Jesus is talking about his return, how we should always be ready for his return and expectant of his return, he gives the example of this one servant who was the steward of the house. And this service, servant went, man, the master is still not back. I'm, I'm tired of being ready, essentially. So he basically, it says he eats and drinks, and then he starts beating the fellow servants. And so he's not treating the other people in the house fairly. So we need to make sure as stewards, or a steward should make sure that they're treating other people fairly, especially those under them. <coughs> so we get into verse 1 and 2 of chapter 16. It says, Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting his possessions, or his steward. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management, because you cannot be manager any longer. Now, first off, Jesus is talking to his disciples here. But if you look at the context of the whole of uh, 14, 15, or I'm sorry, 15, 16, and 17, he's talking about, or he's talking to his disciples here, but there's a mixed crowd. There's people who have just been following him around. There's the disciples, and there's Pharisees and scribes. So it's a mixed crowd, but he's not talking to anybody else. He's talking to the disciples. This is a message just for them. So he's talking to them about stewardship. <clears throat> now the master says, give an account of your stewardship or your management. Now those are words, as I've been implying, that everyone will hear. All of us will hear those, whether it's a saint in the church or a sinner outside the church. Everybody in some way is going to give account to God about what we've done. Now for the Christian, in 2 Corinthians 5.10, this is called the Bema Seat of Christ. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. Now for the non-Christian... Revelation 20, verses 11 through 12, is the great white throne judgment. And it says, Then I saw a great white throne and him who was seated on it. The earth and the heavens fled from his presence, and there was no place for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne. And the books were opened, and another book was opened, which is the book of life. The dead were judged according to what they had done as recorded in the book. There's a difference. So we're, everyone's going to receive judgment and accounting at some time. Uh, Charles Spurgeon once noted in regard to this passage, this um, parable, that each one of us will give an account of our stewardship in regards to our time, 
our talents, our substance, and our influence. And so what we need to do is when we get further into this is ask ourselves, how did we manage what God gave me? Now, we as Christians, and I just gave you some examples there, are to be stewards of specific things, and I listed four here. Now, the first is we're to be stewards of giving. And this is not just tithes and offerings, but this is of all of our income. And it's not, tithing is not, here's your cut, God. I'll do what I want with my 90% or 80% or whatever the case may be. The attitude is, okay, Lord, thank you for what you provided. What would you like me to do? And then he speaks to your heart, okay, give this much to the church. Okay, you know, why don't you give this to Pregnancy Care Center? Or he may say, why don't you take that and take your family on a vacation and spend time together as a family? He may do any number of those things. And it's, money is not bad. It's not bad to own money. It's not bad to be rich. It's not bad to be poor. None of those things. But God wants you to enjoy what you've given him, just not take that enjoyment as a God in your life. God is not a cosmic killjoy is what I wrote here. He created the earth in all its fullness for us to enjoy. So he wants us to be good stewards, but again, he's given us this world to enjoy. We need to make sure we're doing that as well. Now, the second thing is time. And I think this is probably the thing that's hardest, well, for a lot of people. I know it's, it's tough for me. Because, well, let me read Ephesians 5, 15 through 17 first. It says, be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise, making the most of every opportunity because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. So the phrase redeeming the time comes from the business world. And what it means is to buy up the opportunity. Now, Many years ago, maybe, I don't know, maybe it was a decade ago, I don't remember when the housing market collapsed here, but everybody basically started walking away from their houses. And at that time, a lot of people jumped in and started buying up the property to be able to flip it. And that's kind of, that's the best picture I can come up with, but those people were buying up the opportunity to make money. We as Christians are supposed to buy up the opportunity that we have in order to be witnesses for Christ, to be examples for Christ, whatever we can do. We need to buy the opportunity. <coughs> now, Warren Wiersbe said, Time is eternity, minted into precious minutes and handed to us to either use wisely or carelessly. So we need to be wise in our time. Now, the an, uh, another... Uh, quote here is remember life can be enjoyed but that it is also an investment into eternity now the third thing we need to be good stewards of is our gifts and abilities first peter 4:10 says each of you should use whatever gift you have received to serve others as faithful stewards of god's grace in its various forms so as stewards of these gifts and abilities we're to use them to win the lost encourage saints and meet the needs of hurting people uh, we also get that in Ephesians 4, where it talks about the grace that God's given us. We're supposed to be stewards of that grace, um, and it mentions specific gifts, mainly pastors, teachers, and some others, but they're to use their gifts to minister to others to build up the body of Christ. And that's how they can be responsible. But we all have different gifts. Those aren't dealing gifts. Now, the fourth way we are good stewards is with the gospel. First Thessalonians 2.4 says, on the contrary, we speak as those approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please people, but God who tests our hearts. And the key words there are entrusted with the gospel. That is what we're entrusted with as stewards. And again, as stewards, we keep these things in mind <coughs> because we know we'll give an accounting. Romans fourteen ten through 12 also gives the same thought. It says, for we will all stand before God's judgment seat. It is written, as surely as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow before me. Every tongue will acknowledge God. So then each of us will give an account of ourselves to God. Now, so just as we will give an account, so this steward is now going to give an accounting to his master. <coughs> 
And someone, just, Dustin, could you give me some water, please? I'm sorry. I forgot to bring it up. So verse 3 and 4. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I am not strong enough to dig, and I am ashamed to beg. And then he has a light bulb moment. In verse 4, he says, I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So when he realizes he's going to come to account, he goes, okay, I've wasted. What, what have I done? I haven't, I haven't done anything. He's going to be accountable for what he's done, but he doesn't know what he's going to do. Where is he going to turn? He has no one to turn to. So what he does is he realizes he can't change his past. He can't change what he's done already. But what he can do is prepare for his future. So what does he do? Verse 5 through 7. So he called in each one of his master's debtors. He asked the first, How much do you owe my master? 900 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, Take your bill, sit down, and make it 450. Then he asked the second, And how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told him, Take your bill and make it 800. Thank you. So what did the steward do? He made friends with his master's debtors by settling their accounts for less than they owed. So again, the steward, knowing he was going to be called to account, used his present position to prepare him for the next stage of his life. Now, verse 8 says, The master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than are the people of the light. Excuse me. <clears throat> now, this is a unique parable in that some people consider this to be Jesus' most difficult parable simply because it seems that Jesus is obviously using a very dishonest man as an example. In most of the other parables, it's not that way. It's usually some positive example that we can follow. But in this one, it seems like he's using this genuinely dishonest man. And some people would say the master was dishonest too. But he's using these two dishonest people as an example of what we should follow. (coughs) But God sometimes uses evil things that we're familiar with in order to help us illustrate a particular point without praising the thing uh, itself. Now, an example that we have from Scripture is from Paul, who used war and slavery as illustrations of the Christian life. Now, God doesn't endorse slavery in any form. There are people who would uh, discount the Bible because there are instances in the Old Testament where it mentions slavery. (coughs) And let me explain that. Real quick. When God talks about slavery in the Bible, it's never as an endorsement. If you look in the passage where Jesus is talking about divorce and marriage with the Sadducees, the Sadducees say, well, who's going to get this woman because they all divorced her and they're talking about divorce. And Jesus says, look, the only reason God permitted divorce or Moses permitted divorce is because of the hardness of your hearts. See, The hardness of the heart isn't just with that subject. It's with every subject in the Old Testament at the time, whether it was slavery, whether it was how they acted in war or battle. Everything back then was because of the hardness of their hearts. Now, we all have that same hard heart. We can all have our hard heart towards different subjects. Back then, though, in the Old Testament, when God was giving guidelines if you look at the guidelines that God was giving, and then you looked at the other cultures in antiquity at the exact same time, God actually elevated Israel above those cultures with the rules. See, an escaped slave at that time, throughout, like throughout most of history, was usually killed. That's not how it was in Israel. Not to mention the fact that slaves in Israel actually had rights. 
They had certain rights, and God said they were to be treated in a certain way. So slavery is not condoned by God, but because he knows the hardness of our hearts and how slow we are to accepting change, God slowly, incrementally through time, moved up the standards that he has. So you can look at the standards in the Old Testament law, and then you look at what Jesus said when he would start to say, and I tell you, we have 2,000 years of God slowly working through the nation of Israel to change their hearts towards the ideal that he's looking for. And from Jesus' time until now, he's still working in each one of our hearts because we're still hard-hearted to find and to create that person he wants us to be. So again, God doesn't condone, condone slavery, but what he did is he was slowly working in the hearts of the people at the time. <clears throat> but again, Paul uses examples of slavery and war as uh, ways we live the Christian life because he calls them a bond slave or a doulos. Again, slavery was different, but it still looked as a negative thing. So God uses negative illustrations. Because a lot of times it's what we understand. Now, the dishonest steward, though he was dishonest, though it seemed like, <coughs> or he was committing fraud against his master, he has several points where he was a good example. Now, first, he knew he would be called to account for his life, and he took that very seriously. Christians, and even non-Christians, when, they re- when someone realizes they're going to be called to account for something, it a lot of times snaps something in their brain where they realize, okay, I've got to do something. Who's this Jesus again? I need to follow him because I'm going to be called to account. But we need to take it seriously because we need to make sure we are joyfully about the master's business because we know at whatever point we got saved, a lot of times when people first get saved, they're joyful, they're happy, they're moving along, and it's good. But it's very easy to get complacent. There was a song by Keith Green. I don't remember the name of the song right now. But he talks about being mature in the faith but at the same time, he's, he's growing weary, and he doesn't want to. And one of the lyrics of the songs is, Lord, I don't want to fall away from you. I don't want to become, you know, I don't want to be a drab Christian. I'm paraphrasing. He says, I just want to have the joy that I have had when I first met you. And it's very easy for us to when we don't keep in mind that we're going to be called to account to not think of those things. Now, second is <clears throat> he took advantage of his present position, as I've mentioned, to arrange a comfortable future. And again, <clears throat> the master wasn't approving of the servant's conduct. He did in fact approve of the steward's shrewdness. Now I had to look up shrewdness because I'd heard the word, I know what the word to act like a shrew means, but it's different. Shrewd, the definition is, having or showing sharp powers of judgment. A synonym for that would be astute, sharp-witted, sharp, smart, acute, intelligent, clever, perceptive. So he was perceptive, he understood, he was wise, he knew what was going to happen. And because he knew what was going to happen, he acted on that. So what was Jesus commending for the unjust steward? In his shrewdness, Jesus was commending the man for his wise use of opportunity. And Jesus says, excuse me, for the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind than the people of light are. Now, Jesus added the thought that the businessmen of his day, which are the sons of this world or the non-Christians, were more wise, they were more bold, they were more forward-thinking in the management of what they had. They were experts at seizing opportunity and making money, at making friends, and at getting ahead in the world. 
But he made the point that, you know, the Christians, the people of light, or the sons of light, they're not as wise with managing what they had. God's people should show the same shrewdness when it comes to managing the spiritual affairs of this life as the sons of the world were. Now, it's also an important thing to take note of is that the people of this world plan only for the things of this world. They don't plan for eternity. And again, as children of God, we should live with eternity's values in view. And so we should make better use of opportunities, our opportunities because of that. One commentator said that Jesus' assessment is still true. The sons of this world are still more shrewd in their generation than the sons of light are. Someone once said, it is a shame of the church that Coca-Cola is more widely distributed than the gospel of Jesus Christ is. And it is simply because the sons of this world are more shrewd in their generation. And... (laughs) Even third world countries that you go to, Coca-Cola is there. Even McDonald's is there. There's many, think of those companies, and they are shrewd. They are finding inroads into other countries because they're looking for ways to make money to progress in this world. Even the company I work for does that, looking for different places to, (coughs) or avenues to uh, set up in and to grow as a company. Now, regarding that, as far as the shrewdness goes and how Christians react and act in this world with regard to our opportunity. There's a secular author, and I'm probably pronouncing his last name wrong, but his name is Ken Follett. He wrote in a book a description of his impression of Christians through a character who was raised in a communist country. This is the quote of the character, from the character, or I'm sorry, a quote about the character in the book. He believed in communism the way most people believed in God. He would not be greatly surprised or disappointed if he turned out to be wrong. And meanwhile, it made little difference to the way he lived. That's biting. I just read that last night for the first time. And he's saying... There are a lot of people who lived in the Iron Curtain who were communists, but they weren't really communists. They were just there. <coughs> There's a lot of people who are truly Christians, but they're not truly allowing it to change their life, and they're not truly making the most of the opportunities that are given. Anyway, that, that was a very biting critique. Um, and in response to that, another Bible commentator, in an encouragement because of this parable, said, Go to the men of the world, thou Christian, and do not let it be said that the devil's scholars are more studious and earnest than Christ's disciples. That's what we should be, studious and earnest disciples of Christ, even more than the devil's scholars are. Now, three admonitions based on the experience of the steward. The first, verse 9, verse 9 says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves, so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwelling. Now, another version calls it unrighteous mammon, to make friends for yourself. So the term righteous or worldly wealth, or unrighteous or worldly wealth, always strikes people the wrong way, because when I first read it, I'm like, well, that's weird. I don't understand this passage. And it just, it sounds, make friends for yourself by unrighteous mammon or by unrighteous money or worldly wealth. It doesn't sound right. It doesn't seem to fit with Christian teaching. But there are three ways that it can be referred to. One is the means in acquiring wealth in an incorrect way. Two is the way in which one desires to use wealth, which could be also negative. The third one is the corrupting influence wealth can have that often leads people to commit unrighteous acts. Now, given the way in which Jesus uses the term, the third explanation seems most likely. While wealth is not inherently evil, the love of money can lead to all sorts of sins. Now, he's saying, use unrighteous mammon. 
or worldly wealth, the wealth that we have. Now, while we have opportunity, while we are to use our opportunities wisely, while we have the opportunity, we need to gain friends. Now, what does it mean? We're to gain friends for the Lord. We have only so much time before our lives and resources come to an end. Everybody has a different amount of time, and so we need to use them wisely now to bring people to Christ. We're supposed to gain friends from worldly wealth and use those as a means to, I didn't word this right, means to use the resources of this world to bring people to Christ, if that makes sense, if I said that right. Now, here's an example. I make money at my work, as all of you do, and I use that in, like I said, in tithing. We all tithe, we all give an offering, we all support the church in some way. Now, if you support a missionary outside the church or you support some other company, or not company, but um, what am I trying to say? Charity, thank you. That word that my daughter is named after. (laughs) (laughs) If you support some other charity, then you are using your unrighteous mammon or your worldly wealth to gain friends, hopefully, for the kingdom. Now, imagine if we get to heaven, and you've donated to a missionary for years, maybe your entire life. The, the length is irrespective. It doesn't matter. But that missionary then goes and takes the money that you've given him, and he goes and ministers to people in whatever country God has called him to. <clears throat> you get to heaven, and somebody comes up to you and says, thank you so much for what you've done because of what you did. I, I heard Christ and now I'm in heaven. And you're like, well, I don't even know who you are. I've never met you before. He said, no, but because of what you did, because of what you donated, so-and-so came and was able to talk to me and God, God used you to provide the funds to come and witness to me. So you're gaining friends from what you have done wisely with your money. Another example would be our church <clears throat> supports an orphanage in Cambodia as well as the water of life. Now, the, the woman who runs the orphanage over there, her name's Catherine, and she ministers to many kids. And so while she ministers to the kids, it is us using the unrighteous mammon or the worldly wealth again to give to them for her to minister. And that is what that means, gaining friends. We also do this when we collect boxes for Samaritan's Purse. When we do Christmas on the main, when the games that are built for the Christmas, Christmas on the main or the tearing down and the setting up when you take part of that <clears throat> or the, the sewing of the stockings, everything that goes into it, every little piece that goes into those events that, that we as a church do, that is gaining friends from worldly wealth or unrighteous mammon. That is the part that we play. That is what it means. The, the time we put into VBS, even... Halloween is coming up. Now, there are both sides of the debate as to whether Christians should celebrate Halloween. I did not personally grow up celebrating it. I don't regret that in the least. But in the recent months, I have been praying. I said, okay, God, well, how can I, what's another way to give the gospel that's not going, you know, just give me an idea of how else I can give the gospel. What's another way to expand the gospel? Now, even though I didn't celebrate Halloween growing up, there was several years where we had little tracks that we would hand out as people came up to the door for candy. Now, I don't think we put candy with them. We just threw the tracks in there. But I was thinking, and God hit me with it, you need to get candy, and you need to take those good person tests and rubber band them to the candy bars, and if that happens, you give them out. And that would be one other way to do it. And that is, again, using worldly wealth that God's provided for, to gain friends for the kingdom, hopefully. And because you don't know where that track is going to end up. I've spoken in the past where I read in a devotional that a man was on the brink, I think, of giving up. He was in his truck, and I think he was going to commit suicide. I don't remember exactly how it was now. But he got out of his truck, and in the gutter was a wet tract about the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
And the guy picked it up and looked at it, and he got saved. Now, a lot of times when my kids and I go hiking, <clears throat> we hand out tracks. But the kids do most of the track handing out. And sometimes on the way back down from wherever we're hiking, we find these tracks on the ground, or sometimes we'll find them like shoved into little holes that people are trying to hide them because they don't want to carry it. And I'm sure we don't catch them all. If they're useful, we pick them back up. If they're not useful, we pick them back up and throw them away. But the ones that we miss, what if someone else who we didn't get to hand a track to picked that up and they were impacted by that as well? It's all these opportunities that we have to gain friends for the Lord using worldly wealth. Now, all of us should want to meet people in heaven who trusted Christ because we helped to pay the bill for the gospel witness around the world, and then we started that at home. I think that's so cool that even if it's someone we never met, it's someone we got to support on the side, or, or just little things like that, because you never know the tiniest thing that you do, the impact, how big of an impact the tiniest thing can have in the kingdom. It also brings up the question, what are we willing to sacrifice and do without in order to use our worldly wealth for the eternal good? <coughs> Verses 10 through 12. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. Did I miss something? So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with the true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? So the second, I put it, second admonition based on the experience of the steward is be faithful in the way you use your material wealth. <coughs> If you're unfaithful in the way you use your money, how can you be faithful in the way you use the true riches of the kingdom? Now, there is the reward that we get in heaven. <clears throat> now, personally, I don't believe it's real crowns. I don't believe it's real jewels. I don't believe it's real gold. I don't care for those things anyway, so I really hope it's not that. Um, I believe it's responsibility. I believe that when God comes a second time and he sets up his kingdom, the faithfulness that we've shown on earth is going to manifest in the responsibility he gives us on earth. So when you think about it that way, if our faithfulness here determines our reward, we need to ask ourselves whether we want to be responsible for a city or a hovel. Do we want to be responsible and have been so faithful that God says, you know, Eric, you're going to take charge of... I don't know why Cincinnati comes to mind, but Cincinnati. <laughs> Not that I want to be in charge of that. But do I want to be responsible for that? Or have I been so not responsible with what God's given me that all I have is a little shack to take care of? And that's not an exact picture, but that's really what respons the responsibility is. If you're faithful in little things, you move up, and you're faithful with more things. If you look at Joseph in the book of Genesis... He was a slave. He was the bottom of the rung in the house to start with. And he was faithful. And he moved up. And he was faithful. And he moved up. And then he got kicked down by Satan. Got put in prison for false accusations. But he was faithful in prison. And he moved up. And then he was able to be, continue to be faithful to God. Interpret dream for the Pharaoh. And then he moved to the second in the kingdom. And that's what faithfulness does. Faithfulness with the opportunity that you're given. <clears throat> now, the world is filled with financial planners and advisors, and those are not bad things. Those are good things, because we all need to know how to manage our money wisely. But when a lot of us, when a lot of Christians and people in general talk about practicing money management, they always forget about long-term investment. <clears throat> and again, for us, that's eternity. Now, I was, because the company I work for, I pay attention to the stock all the time. And I think it was two or three days ago, I don't remember exactly when, the stock dropped like 
like quickly, within a couple days. And that hasn't happened in a long time. It usually goes up incrementally a dollar or two, goes down a dollar or two. But it was up to almost, I think, 260 a couple weeks ago. And it dropped. I think it's at like 227 or 228 right now. It dropped severely. And an email was sent out from the company, from the, the CEO. And he said, a lot of people are worried about the company because it looks like we're failing and stock dropped. And he gave an explanation as to why it happened. He said, but a lot of our long-term investors know that we're in it for the long haul. We're not looking for quick gains. We're looking for the short gains. We're looking for the long-term. We plan on being here for a long time. And that's what my company does. And so, you know, they're not worried about it. It just happened. That's just how the stock market is. But that's what we're in for. We're not in for quick gains as a Christian. We're in for the long haul. We're in to make sure that we're not trying to rush to get things done or, or oh, look at the impact I had today, and then, you know, we have no impact for the rest of our life. It's we grow in Christ, everybody at their own pace, and we make these gains incrementally over time with eternity in mind because we have an eye for eternity. That's what we're living for. And it's really an issue of how we manage God's resources over time. It's not how great the resources are that God has given us. It's how we've managed what he has given us. Another thing to keep in mind is a lot of people will not invest or maybe not give a lot now to whatever God's causes are because they go, well, I've got a little to give, but I don't have enough yet. I'm, I, you know, I don't make that much, so I can't possibly give this much. In a survey that was taken in 1992, people were asked how much money they would need to achieve the American dream. Those who earned 25000 or less a year thought they would need around 54000 And those in the $100,000 annual income bracket said they could buy the dream for about $192,000 a year. So if you look at these figures, it kind of indicates that we typically think that if we double our income, that's where the good life comes, and then that's where we can really start giving to God what he deserves. That's not really how it works. <clears throat> we give to God now, and as we're faithful, as I said, in the little, then God blesses us with more responsibility, sometimes more money, not all the time. But as Proverbs says, you get money, and the eagle, it's going to fly away like an eagle. Money comes and goes. Now, the third thing we learned from the steward, verse 13. No one can serve two masters. Either you will hate the one and love the other, or you will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. It's really the third thing is simply to be wholly devoted to God and single-minded, not double-minded. We can't love or serve two masters any more than we can walk two directions at one time. None of us are Gumby. So if God is our master, then money will be our servant, and we will use our resources for the will of God. But if money is our master, we will start to waste our life instead of investing it. And we don't want to find ourselves friendless as we enter heaven. We want to make sure we're gaining friends for the kingdom. Now, verses 14 through 17. The Pharisees who loved money heard all this and were sneering at Jesus. He said to them, you are the ones who justify yourselves in the eyes of others, but God knows your hearts. What people value highly is detestable in God's sight. The law and the prophets were proclaimed until John. Since that time, the good news of the kingdom of God is being preached and everyone is forcing their way into it. It is easier for heaven and earth to disappear than for the least stroke of a pen to drop out of the law. <clears throat> the word sneering there literally means to turn up their noses at him. The Pharisees profess to trust God, obviously. And everybody knows how unfair the Pharisees were. But they measured their life by their wealth and their possessions. They didn't measure it in their relationship to God. Now, what I think is interesting about this parable is its position. If you go back to Luke 14, which is kind of the beginning of the section, in that chapter you see Jesus is invited to a supper at the Pharisee's house. And 
As he's leaving the Pharisee's house, he has multitudes who learned of his location start to follow him. And it says, as they're following him, he turned and said to them. Now, a lot of times in scripture, the, the crowds are always following him around. He's used to it, but he always turns and talks to them. But it's significant here that he turns around in this instance and he teaches on discipleship. And he's talking to his followers, he's not just talking to the 12, he's talking to the followers as a whole. People who are just following him around to hear what he says, or maybe for a free meal, what, he did a lot of cool stuff, but they're following him. But you see, you can't just follow Jesus' teachings. He was a good moral teacher, he did do a lot of good things, but you can't just follow him and go, I got a relationship with him, me and him are good, you know, I'm spiritual. It doesn't work that way. It says in scripture that many will come to Jesus on the day of judgment and say, Lord, Lord, didn't we do all these things in your name? He will say, depart from me. I never knew you. Because you can't just follow Jesus. You can't just follow his example. You've got to be a disciple of Jesus. And a disciple, the word, the Greek word is mathetes. And it's more than just a student or a learner. It is a follower, but it is a follower in the sense of someone who adheres completely to the teachings of another, making them his rule of life and conduct. So not just a follower with what that Jesus says, that's a good idea, but who's completely devoted to that teaching of that person. And that's what it is to be a disciple of Christ, completely devoted to him. Now, after he teaches on discipleship at the end of chapter 14, we begin chapter 15 with the tax collectors and sinners coming there to listen to him because he's teaching on discipleship. Now, they're, they're curious because they want to know. They're hungry. And as they're coming near to listen to him, the Pharisees and scribes notice the tax collectors and sinners, and they go, ugh, why is he even talking with them? Why is he sitting with them? Why is he eating with them? I mean, he ate with us. Why is he going to go spend time with them? What does he need to do that for? So he speaks to the Pharisees the parable of the lost sheep the lost coin, and the lost son, or the prodigal son. And when he talks about those parables, he talks about the value of those who are lost and that they need to be found. That's a quick summation of those, but that's the general point. Now, once he's done speaking the parables to the Pharisees and the scribes, he purposely turns to his disciples, and remember, he's in a mixed group, and he teaches on stewardship at that point. And I think that's on purpose because... The managing of the resources God has given us is to give the gospel and bring others into the kingdom. It's not just that we're followers in Christ's name, but disciples. And then when we're disciples, we're going to have a heart for the lost. And we should shrewdly or in wisdom be managing our time, energy, and resources with an eye on the future, making every effort to bring others into the kingdom, keeping in mind that we'll be called account as the unjust steward was for what he did or did not do. I think it was all connected. Now, I I realize I didn't teach on the other chapters, but they're all connected. They're all moving together. Jesus purposely went, okay, Pharisees, then the multitude, then the Pharisees were critical, then the tax collectors, all these different things. But his disciples are with him the whole time. And part of discipling someone and teaching someone is them watching how you respond to different people. And children do that. And parents are supposed to disciple their children. Unfortunately, not everything my kids watch is what I want them to learn. But they're watching and learning. And people are watching and learning us because learning of us and about us because we're disciples of Christ. And they're watching how we use our resources. And all these things fit together. Now that book that I said I quoted out of earlier, in the same chapter, there was this family... And they had been given, uh, it was a mission-oriented uh, service that they had gone to. And they felt God's call <clears throat> to go to another country. So they went to the front of the church and they were prayed over. And they said, anywhere, anytime, anything, Lord. We'll give you all of us. We'll give you all of our resources. The husband was an aircraft mechanic, and I forget which country they went to. But the house they lived in was, the walls were about five feet high or so. 
And then there was a huge gap. And then there was a roof. So there was no warmth. The wind and the weather was constantly in the house. And I forget how long they'd been there, but the wife said, this isn't what I meant, Lord. And the husband asked her if she wanted to leave, and she said yes. But they didn't leave. They stayed, and God taught her that this is the resources that he wanted her to use at the time. So she understood, anytime, anywhere, anything, Lord. And then her oldest, and it was her, her husband, and three kids, her oldest son went to college. She didn't want to let him go because she'd been raising him there. It was her, it was her oldest son. And God said, you said anytime, anywhere, anything. And she said, Lord, but I didn't mean this. I don't want to let my son go. But eventually she let him go and she understood and she grew from it. She gave God all of her resources, which in this case was her son. Time passes. They go to the back to the States. I forget where they get it. I think in North Carolina, they get a job. The husband gets a job. The oldest son has now graduated college. He's got a girlfriend who I think is a fiance. He's getting ready to be a missionary himself. They get a call to come to the hospital. They said, well, your son's girlfriend is going to make it. Unfortunately, he did not. And when the anything, anytime, anywhere Lord came up, she said, Lord, I didn't mean this. And he said, but this is the resources that you gave me. I wanted to use your son. And you don't know. It's, it's heartbreaking. It was, I was actually reading this chapter to my kids last night, and I was like, you know, it's killing me. Because I don't want to lose any of my kids. But we use all the resources that God gives us. And you don't know the impact of how you react um, to something like that. God may use the death of a family member or, or whoever to impact someone else for Christ. Now, the blessing of that story is that son was saved. That son got to see his heavenly father. And that was one of the comforts, actually, that she actually received from that was she said the Lord told her, well, I want to spend some time with him now. And so he took him home. But when we use all of our resources for God's kingdom, it should always be Anywhere, Lord, anytime, Lord, anything, Lord. Let's go ahead and pray. Lord, I thank you for your word and the parable of the unjust steward. And even though the steward was a scumbag, Lord, we still learn to be faithful to you and to take the most opportunity of our time and to use all of our resources for your glory. <coughs> do thank you, Lord, for your word. And Lord, as we take communion, uh, we pray that we would ponder the direction you would have us go and that we would have that same thought anywhere, anytime, anything, Lord. In Jesus' name.